You're in the water loop. Hey everyone, this is Travis with Waterloop. I know a lot of people want to use water efficient fixtures, but they're afraid they won't work as well. Let me tell you about High Sierra Showerheads, which was named Best Showerhead by Popular Science. I just installed one at my house and I was genuinely surprised at the power and coverage of the water. High Sierra Showerheads earn the EPA WaterSense label for water efficiency. They use at least 40% less water than the conventional low flow showerheads. High Sierra showerheads are constructed out of metal, so there's no plastic involved, they're very durable, and they're naturally antibacterial. One of my favorite things, these showerheads are made in the USA by a small business located in the Sierra Nevada foothills. Get 20% off with promo code WATERLOOP at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Order today and start saving water and money with High Sierra. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Very excited to be joined by a longtime friend, Rob Puentes. He is the CEO and president of the Eno Center for Transportation. Rob, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, we are uh, we are bunkered down in the coronavirus world right now. So uh, glad we could connect uh, during all this. So I'm I'm happy to talk to you about this uh, this topic I don't usually talk a lot about, and that's the intersection of water and transportation. Uh, you've been working in transportation policy for a very, very long time, a great expert in this, and I've been in water. And so now we find a way to, uh, to uh, collaborate on something here. Um, big picture, what are some of the different ways that to think about and the topics to think about when you talk about the intersection of water and transportation? We'll dive into a bunch, but just kind of big picture. Um, yeah. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again for having me. The, um, and before I started here at, at Eno, I was with the Brookings Institution, where I was dealing with all their infrastructure work, mm. um, which includes transportation and water and energy and broadband and other things. And and you're exactly right that these areas of infrastructure that we usually keep apart and separate um, when it comes to public policy, when it comes to um, you know, professional disciplines, we always keep these things separate. But in reality, as folks know, these are all connected in some way, right? They're all under this big umbrella of infrastructure and while they do different things, they all do interact together. And water and, and transportation um, clearly have lots of things to do with one another. You know, for years, we've known that there is an infrastructure crisis in this country, not just from the things that we have failed to um, maintain and upkeep and upgrade and modernize, but we've also failed to make strategic investments in the new infrastructure that we need to compete here in the 21st century economically, socially, environmentally. And both those, the, that indictment falls under both water and, and transportation. So they do share that, for one thing. Mm. Um, but um, there's lots of cases where water and transport infrastructure intersect. Obviously, water pipes uh, and transportation infrastructure run along the same right-of-way in a lot of places. And if you're digging up a street um, to do something for either fixing the water, you're, you're affecting transportation and other areas of infrastructure as well. Um, more negatively, I think paved roads and, and stormwater runoff pollutants um, from from uh, from vehicles and from land, um, all those things affect the, the stormwater and the, the water systems. It can be pretty damaging to the natural environment. Transportation is the number one emitter of, of greenhouse gases. It's dirty in and of itself. There's obviously a lot of negative things that go along with transportation 
that affects water. Um, and the other thing I think is obvious is that water is transportation. Humans have used water to transport themselves and goods for you know, as long as there have been humans, I guess. <laughs> um, and the water itself has to be transported in, in pipes and aqueducts and, and things like that. So even though these are two separate areas of infrastructure, there's lots of ways, I think, where they do intersect. Yeah, that's right. I'm glad. I'm glad you mentioned off the top your your background at Brookings because you were very broad, looking at all these different aspects of of infrastructure. Um, do you think that those silos are starting to break down a little bit, or you know, policy leaders, uh, folks at different levels of government, uh, are starting to to look at the intersection and be more strategic about approaching approaching the intersection of different parts of infrastructure? I think on the local level, it's starting to. I don't think it's happening necessarily on the state. Maybe it's a little bit, but certainly not on the federal level, right? So and the higher if you get on the, the, the bureaucratic chain, the more entrenched these, these institutions are and the bureaucracy is. So on the local level, if you're a, a, a local policymaker, a mayor, you have to think about all these things together. And as they think about climate change and, um, and flooding and infrastructure and all these kinds of things, they have to think of them more holistically. So that's that's the optimistic way to say, it. you know, more more realistic, though, I think that's a big challenge that we have in this country is that these areas of infrastructure are still so siloed from one another. And as much as we try to join them up, water people have a hard time talking to transportation people, transportation people have a hard time talking to energy people, they have a hard time talking to broadband and, and all along the line. It's getting better, but we have an awful long way to go. Yeah, sure. I know that uh, the water sector kind of uh, Congress stole from the transportation structure uh, side with TIFIA and WIFIA, right? Like TIFIA was this long time way to to fund transportation infrastructure projects. And, and finally, they're like, well, maybe we should do a kind of a similar model for water. And it's been, it seems like very successful in its, in its early going at putting a, a big dollars out there. So um, you, you mentioned, let's dive into some of these different areas here. You mentioned the kind of obvious thing of, of using water as transportation, you know, uh, actually ferries and shuttles and water taxis and all this stuff. Um, I'm just wondering about kind of the prevalence of that what the trends are. I feel like as I've gone around the country to different cities, I've seen more of these little water taxis going between different parts of town. And um, even even in DC, right? Like they've got National Harbor and you've and all that stuff. So what's what's going on just using water as a literal way to, to transport people around? Yeah, it's more prevalent in, in certain places. Obviously in New York, Seattle has the Washington State ferries. Boston Harbor, I know, has, has a bunch. So we, mm. we've used them in a lot of uh, a lot of cities, a lot of metro areas across the world. It's not that prevalent here in the United States, though. There's about 100 million people that use ferries for transport um, in the United States each year, which which sounds like a lot. About half of that is for commuting. The other half is for other kind of trips, pleasure trips or just getting across the body of water. Um, but there's about 10 billion people that take public transit alone. So 100 million to 10 billion, you can see just mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, it's it, it is a small piece of the overall transit pu- puzzle. But I think it's becoming a little more prevalent. I mean, Mayor de Blasio has a big ferry initiative he's launched in New York, no pun intended, but he's uh, <laughs> trying to connect up parts of Long Island with parts of the city. It's heavily subsidized. It's come under some criticism because it's it's hard to make these things very uh, efficient, right, and and, and um, profitable for, for some of the ferry, ferry conductors. Yeah. Or the ferry 
Yeah, you can't move as many people on these little ferries as you can in trains or, you know, that just keep kind of moving along and, and all that stuff. It seems like it's a nice little uh, addition for tourists and, and all that, just kind of exploring an area. Um, too, and the insurance and things like that become very expensive. They always try to uh, – here on the Potomac River, we have a couple, as you noted. They're always trying to launch new services, and they always run into big insurance kind of issues. That seems to be the showstopper. Hmm, interesting. Um, I, I wanted to ask about – uh, commerce and you know on the water and what how that's part of the transportation puzzle, especially for for I don't know the local officials, the state officials that have to manage that type of thing. Yeah, as opposed to passenger transport, um, water for freight movement is is very prevalent. Hmm. Um, in fact, the head of the United Nations said that marine transportation is the backbone of the global economy. Right, and in a lot of ways, that's very true. Um, and no nation um, can live in isolation. We all have to trade goods and services with one another. Uh, and every country, literally every country, re- relies on maritime trade um, to sell what it has and buy what it doesn't have. Right. So it's very, very prevalent all across the planet. Um, it's cheap, relatively cheap to move that way, too, when you have these, these gigantic ships, some of them, especially these brand new, what they call Panamax ships, these ones that are too big now to even fit through the new Panama Canal because they're so large. Um, you know, it's a very efficient way to move a lot of goods, and we import so many things from Asia here in this country. Um, about 5% of the, um, the goods that we move in, this, in the country are coming from water. It doesn't sound like that much, but when you think about foreign trade, it's really where um, mm. it, it turns out being very, very efficient. About 69% um, of the freight tons in this country uh, are moved by uh, of the imported and uh, globally traded stuff uh, is moved by water. So that is quite a bit. And shipping and ports and all that industry is responsible for a little bit more than a quarter of global domestic products. So when you think about versus passenger transport mm-hmm. for goods and for, for shipping, it's quite a bit. But much bigger part. Yeah. And, and where I am in Wilmington, North Carolina, it's it's called the port city. We've got a, a, a big active port here. And so that's also a big driver for the local economy, jobs, people working there and, and all that good stuff. So um, all right, let's dive into a few of the things you mentioned earlier uh, about stormwater and how transportation impacts stormwater quality, the, the pollution that it contributes, and, and kind of maybe some of the things that are being done to address that now uh, to, to make transportation infrastructure less impactful on water quality. This is a great, it's a great question. It's a great example of where this transport water connection comes together, because as probably your, your viewers know, the conventional stormwater management has mostly meant engineering systems to move as much water as quickly as possible from one place to another. Um, and as it does that, it picks up all kinds of different pollutants. And across the transportation space, there's a lot of pollutants, a lot of things that come from engines and from brakes and oils and fluids in the vehicles. All these things get sucked up into roadways and parking lots. And those are an enormous amount of many cities. There's estimates that say about two thirds of the impervious surfaces in cities are made up of transportation infrastructure, basically roads and roads and parking lots. So you think about all that garbage that's in the on the pavement, on the on the asphalt, rain comes in and if we've engineered it so that all that stuff just gets funneled through, it's gonna pick up all kinds of pollutants. That's gonna take all that into the into the water system. So um, the runoff is a is a big, big problem. The what's happening now is that stormwater engineers and others are using different kind of best management practices, trying to figure out ways to um, to treat water on site as opposed to just funneling it through where it goes. Um, 
Um, it's it, there's different kinds of ways that they're treating the roads too, as opposed to using salts, mm. for example, in some places using things like sand, which makes people very upset because it doesn't work as well as salt, but it actually <laughs> is much better for you know for the for the water system across the board. So um, it's, it's a great area where they do intersect. If we're not dealing with the transportation infrastructure and we're still doing stormwater engineering in a conventional way, it's going to pick up all that kind of garbage and make make it uh, make it bad for the system. Hmm. Yeah, I know uh, when I was at EPA, every winter, I, we could count on a regular incoming uh, load of phone calls from the media about, oh, here, all this salt going into the waterways, what's it doing? If it was like a heavy snow winter and lots of calls from up north, like all the time. We had our answers, you know, in a file, so we could just turn those over each time. But so many questions about that. Um, so there's a lot, is there is there more going on with this greening of transportation and like a real conscious effort to try to use green infrastructure, to try to design uh, transportation infrastructure in a different way? Um, are, there, are there examples of places where they're emphasizing this? Yeah, a little bit. I think most of it is trying to to minimize the um, the, uh, the prevalence of single occupant vehicles, right? So if we're still driving as much as we always have, we're still driving very efficiently with just one person in the car. Um, it's going to contribute to more of those pollutants, and that's going to be bad all the way around. So a lot of the attention is focused on on shared modes, on on either it's public transit or shared rides, carpooling, uh, non motorized modes of transportation, bicycle, pedestrian. Um, then you can expand it into how we build communities, making sure we don't have to live in places where people have no option but to drive alone. So there's all a whole fleet of, of practice where it's trying to make sure that we're reducing the demand for driving. Um, transportation is the number one emitter of, of greenhouse gases, I've said that before. And so there's a lot of attention on making sure that not only are the vehicles getting cleaner, which we need to do, we need to have more electrification. Uh, we need to make sure that the engines are, are in better shape. We need to do new technologies around brakes to make sure that they're not contributing so much to, to pollutants. But none of that's going to make a difference if we're not reducing the demand for driving. And so connecting it to what's going on now with, with COVID, you know, obviously public transit is, is, is right in the middle of all of that. Um, there's a lot of questions about what's going to happen to public transit in the future. If we need to be social distancing and folks are, 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 are concerned about sharing rides, all of those modes that are designed to help, uh, reduce the demand for driving are going to be affected. So that's something that's that's still out there as a as kind of a wild card. Um, but the whole thing is about trying to figure out how we can reduce the demand for transportation. Doing that then reduces the demand for infrastructure. And if we're reducing the demand for infrastructure, we're not building new roads. And so then there isn't those kind of impervious services that are going to get stepped up. So it's it's these bigger issues that are all very connected. If we're just dealing with one of those pieces, it's not going to be enough. We have to deal with the whole package. Yeah. I know. I wish I could remember the examples off the top of my head, but I have seen some cases where at airports they're doing like green infrastructure projects even to try to deal with runoff <clears throat> at, in, in airports and all that. So there's there's definitely some kind of interesting things going on out there. Uh, also wanted to talk, you know, we've mentioned climate change here in a couple different contexts. Uh, and we've also seen over the past number of years just the, the impacts on a lot of coastal communities from big storms and starting to see sea level rise impact places like, you know, uh, Norfolk and that, that, that area down there, uh, Miami, Miami Beach. Um, so when it comes to the transportation that's in these communities that, that are 
you know, being increasingly impacted by storms and sea level rise, uh, what's the adaptation there? What's the, what are the concerns and what are kind of the changes that might be underway or that need to happen in the years ahead? Yeah, this is an area I think that's very encouraging in a lot of ways because I think it's clear understanding about the climate and transportation connection. As I mentioned, like you mentioning, it's the number one emitter of greenhouse gases. People get that. That is a talking point that has really resonated with people. It's, I don't think it's the first thing that a lot of policymakers you know, think about. But once you hear that, you really don't forget it. And it makes a lot of sense. And so um, the transportation systems, though, themselves are already under very heavy um, stress, right, from heavy precipitation, coastal flooding. You know, all of this has, has really impacted the systems themselves. A lot of calls to making this, the, the infrastructure more resilient. Um, but we have a long, long way to go in this country. There's more than 60,000 miles of U.S. roads and bridges that are right now in coastal floodplains. About 39% of the U.S. population lives directly on shorelines. And so it's not hard to see, you know, given what's happening with, with climate, given what's happening with these major storms that, that are appearing with such regularity um, and, and affecting many of the transportation infrastructure, there's a lot of opportunities here to rethink the transportation infrastructure to adapt to the realities of climate change, right? Um, there are conversations about things to block seawalls and these kinds of things, and that's all fine. Um, but it's really about trying to figure out how do we take the existing infrastructure and make it more resilient to withstand what what is going to be um, a you know crisis here in this country um, for a very long time. The challenge is that it's very expensive, right? Mm -hmm. It has huge impacts on places right now. Boston, the city of Boston is expecting an 80% increase in travel delays just because of flooding that they expect to be happening on the streets over the next bunch of years. Um, New York City is spending $2.5 billion, almost $3 billion, in trying to, uh, to make their transportation system more resilient, more able to withstand the, the problems of climate change. They obviously, as you mentioned, lived through Superstorm Sandy, which completely devastated the transportation infrastructure there a lot on public transit. Um, there are tunnels that have to be completely rebuilt, gigantic enormous scale projects um, that um, their deterioration was accelerated by all that seawater that seeped into these systems, vehicles that get stuck, all that kind of stuff. And so cities are, are paying attention, as you said, mostly to adapting to the new realities, um, new policies for where you store buses when, they're, when there are uh, problems coming up so that they don't get in, in uh, harm's way in the first place. Um, but it's a, it's, they're, they're big, big deals right now trying to figure out how do you think through the entire um, asset management system of transportation infrastructure. When you're building something now, how do you build it so that it actually can not just withstand climate change, but is going to be, has to be re rebuilt when climate change does affect it through flooding or some kind of stormwater damage. So it's a very prominent issue right now, without a doubt. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I know Boston, I don't know if it was last winter or the year before, where they had kind of that... Uh, bomb cyclone or I don't know something and they had just and and there was also the big high tides and it combined to just even really get into parts of the city that was that was unprecedented but something that could be expected to keep happening um and you know Sandy obviously put all that water in uh, into lower Manhattan there and into the subway system and and everything so really uh really incredible stuff um I think they've done it the right way in Boston too and talking about things like travel so it's not this, 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 this abstract kind of concept, this big global thing that's, that's difficult to deal with. You can actually, what they've done is make it related to people's daily commutes. That almost 80% of your commute in the future is going to be affected by flooding, which is caused by, so 
by making it real for people, you actually give them the ability to see how it affects them and understand their role. Mm. Uh, yeah. Sadly, a lot of people don't care about things unless it impacts their personal life. So at least you find the, find the connection there. But those are, I know that water infrastructure gets kind of a, a D or a D minus from the American Society of Civil Engineers, that great report card they put out. Where's is transportation infrastructure? Where's that stand on that report card? Not much better. Yeah. Um, and they take transportation into a couple of different, um, different sectors. Yeah. I think bridges are actually one of the best grades right now. Don't quote me on that, but I, there's been a lot of attention to fixing bridges in the United States. There's been tragic collapses in mm. Atlanta and Minneapolis and other places. And so once that happens, there's a lot of flurry of activity and bridges are easier to, I, I say this with, a, with quotes, but easier to deal with because there's a bridge inventory. We can put this online. We know where the, where the structurally deficient bridges are. And so it's easier to target those for, for rehabilitation and replacement. So I think bridges are in better condition, but Public transit, um, in particular, is in. I think those are in. I mean, not Ds, but I think they're in the C categories. But no one would say that we've done enough to to deal with our transportation infrastructure. And it's that it's that money piece, right? That's one of the biggest biggest pieces here. Obviously, uh, there's a lot to think about strategically and how do you plan these things and do it. But uh, huge, huge price tags uh, for water infrastructure, for transportation infrastructure, um, especially when the, they're kind of in this state of disrepair. Um, and so, and I know that there's a lot of interest or hope right now with the coronavirus recovery efforts that maybe Congress will put dollars toward infrastructure projects as part of like the economic recovery. Uh, we'll see. Who knows? Well, we'll see now that the House Dems put out their proposal as, as we're talking. Um, okay. I haven't seen the details of it. I know that there's water and transportation stuff that's in there. But it gets back to what you're talking about. Uh, you're right that it's very hard to get the money to build uh, or to, to rehabilitate and maintain existing infrastructure, especially, I think, for water, uh, for things that are literally underground that you can't see. It's hard to convince folks that this is something that they need to invest in. We've seen uh, across the board that Americans are very, very willing to tax themselves to pay for new infrastructure. You know, we see this at the ballot box every November and in May, whenever these come up before voters, 80 percent of these things seem to pass because – when folks are, are faced with, well, here's what we're going to build. Here's how much it's going to cost. Here's how, you, how you're going to pay for it. Go, oh, okay, that sounds great. But when it comes down to, well, we need a general program that's going to rehabilitate a bunch of things, I think there's much less trust there, and then they don't see the direct benefit for them. So I don't mean to be cynical about it, but if we could figure out ways to at least convince the public that this is the priority, it really shouldn't. We, we do need to make strategic investments. We're a growing country. Um, there's reasons that we need to be building new infrastructure, but the priority for both water and transportation, I believe, has to be on rehabilitation and maintenance of the existing system. That's a great place where transportation and water is something very much in common. And then when you're doing that spending, investing and in making it resilient for these uh, for these impacts that are that are coming now. Yeah. Uh, last we need to build it the same way that it was. We've got to build it better. Absolutely. La last question I have for you is about this idea of, of how cities might be modifying their transportation infrastructure to regain access to waterfronts. Um, I think when we talked before, you mentioned a, a couple examples of this. I mean, I know um, I've been to some different cities where, uh, like Louisville, for example, they've got you know a highway, a roadway that's kind of blocking 
people from being able to easily access the, the riverfront, which is a tremendous asset for the community, for quality of life. I go to Cincinnati and they've, you know, they've spent and invested in this, this wonderful park area along the water. Um, so are you seeing any uh, thought or movement around uh, you know, opening up, changing transportation infrastructure to allow access to waterfronts or, or where maybe it's happened in the past and been a great success? Yeah, there's definitely interest in doing. It. I think everything that you mentioned is is very much top of mind for folks. We can you can see that because of the it's not that there's transportation infrastructure there. There's massive transportation infrastructure, mm. there. highways, limited access roads that do not provide the ability for folks to access. And so it's this gigantic physical barrier between these communities and this amenity, um, you know, of, of the river and the waterfront. So um, there is a lot of attention to to doing it. It's hard. So it's, a, it's a challenging thing because you're taking something away from people who don't may not be able to benefit from it and they don't understand why it's being done. And it's really expensive. So it usually happens when something has to be done anyway. Um, and the places that do do it really don't ever regret it because in, I, I can heart, cannot think of an example where they've opened up the waterfront to, um, to, uh, to human access by taking down the transportation infrastructure, not getting rid of it, but maybe just resizing it or right-sizing it where it hasn't worked, right? So, I mean, New York does not regret taking down the West Side Highway. Um, San Francisco's Embarcadero Freeway was damaged in the free in the earthquake. They took that down. Obviously, gigantic success there. Um, there's a there's a spur in Milwaukee where they've taken down. Same kind of thing. Open that up for redevelopment and open up access to um, into the waterfront there. Uh, the Alaskan Way viaduct in Seattle need to be replaced, this gigantic um, piece of infrastructure right on the waterfront. They took that down, turned it into more of a, a, a boulevard and a tunnel. Super expensive, but it's going to be a huge benefit for, for that city and also has all kinds of economic benefits as well. And then there's a bunch of places that, that haven't done it yet, but, but people want to, in Buffalo and in Detroit, Tacoma, Washington. There's all kinds of these freeways that are in Trenton, New Jersey. It's a great one. It's right on the, right on the water right there. Um, a lot of, of folks who are targeting these things and tying it back to what you're talking about before, as we're thinking about money for infrastructure, we don't have to just think about building new stuff. It'd be perfectly legitimate and probably really beneficial for a lot of places to use that money to actually take the infrastructure down, uh, especially the infrastructure that's obsolete or, or infrastructure that was built for a different generation, especially if you have this benefit of opening up the waterfront uh, and making that a great amenity for, for people and for places. Yeah. And there's even a little example in D.C., right, where L'Enfant, uh, where they have the new spy museum and, and it was always just kind of like a dead end. And now you can walk across there and go down and get to like the whole be rebuild up uh, waterfront area. So a lot of just, they did the opposite thing in Georgetown. Maybe I'm dating myself. Maybe 20 years <laughs> ago where the Whitehurst Freeway damaged, you know, needed to be addressed. That would have been a perfect opportunity to take that completely down, turn it into a nice boulevard. Um, again, all the transportation infrastructure you mentioned, bike, walking paths, all that goes along with it. They didn't do that. They built it back up to way, the way it was. And I bet you they regret that decision today. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Rob, I'm glad that we got to catch up. I appreciate your time. Uh, just a different angle of water for me to explore. So it was good. And I'm glad that after been knowing each other for, I think, almost 20 years now, we found a way to professionally uh, intersect through this podcast. So yeah, thanks a lot. Take care. We'll see you. Thanks a lot. Good talking to you. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish choice for conserving water 
energy, and money while enjoying an invigorating shower. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Loop. <laughs> 